main issue I have with uh, the, the recording over Zoom is it's just quieter. And like mm. I find every other podcast I listen to, I listen to at like volume 10 on my car and ours, I have mm. to put it to like volume 20. Oh. And then when the disclaimer comes on, the disclaimer Boom. I recorded Loud. right into the, the app. So it's louder yeah. again. I've seen but, that with some other podcasts too, where like the intro will be like, I'll, I'll have to like, yeah, put the volume up during the actual dialogue. But then when it hits a commercial uh, or an ad, then I find that it ends up being loud again. And then I got to you know, either bear through it or turn it down and turn it back up after. Right. So I have seen that uh, in, in others as well. The worst thing is webcasts when they have like an intro music, that's really loud. I used to watch like during the pandemic, I was watching them every day. Um, yeah. Like they're always every day at nine o'clock in the morning and they always had this super loud intro music and then it goes to normal okay. volume. And I emailed uh-huh. them and said, you know, when I'm, when I'm watching your webinar at work here, it's like, yeah. I have it on a normal volume. And then this thing, my speakers are blasting your intro music and everyone around me is like, what, what the hell's going on there? Why is he listening yeah. to rock music while he's supposed to be working? Yeah. And then, and then as soon as your speaker comes on, it's back to normal and I'm having to shift the volume. And I asked them, can you please just like, it's on a 10. Can you turn it to like a seven? <laughs> and they did, they adjusted it. Oh, look at you. Hi, you're listening to the Just Some Musings podcast with Justin Lee and Marcus Muse. We're two advisors with CG Wealth Management in Alberta who finish off our weeks connecting over Zoom to discuss the week that was and other stuff useful for Albertans. What's on the agenda this week, Justin? Well, um, considering that the uh, the timing of uh, the opening of applications to the uh, Alberta Affordability Initiative, uh, I thought that that would be uh, topical and important to, to talk about at least uh, some of the parameters and how to apply for it. Uh, in addition, um, part you know the rationale behind it and, and some inflation numbers that, that to go along with that. And uh, finally, um, it is uh, someone's birthday and coming up. And considering the age that is of of subject, that uh, we speak a little bit about savings and savings rates and how much uh, people think they may need to have uh, at certain times in their life in order to have uh, a comfortable retirement or a, a comfortable second half of their lives. All right. Thank you. So any articles we, re- we refer to, you will find the links on the podcast website at www.muhs.ca slash podcast. So this past week, a couple days ago, the Alberta government officially opened up applications for the Alberta affordability payments. Now, this is something that I think we've talked about uh, or alluded to. And I think that we were all, everybody was sort of waiting for the details to see how and who could apply and what were the conditions. Um, but now, yeah, this past week, it just opened up again. So I thought it'd be interesting to kind of go over it. Um, maybe not so much, just more about the mechanics and, and, and perhaps why, uh, or you know, not necessarily who or who not, right? Because that, that's a ball of wax. We may touch upon it, right? But uh, nevertheless, there's a few interesting points that I wanted to bring up about it. So the intention, right, is that inflation or uh, the economy in the last, you know, year, year and a half, maybe even two, has made it difficult or much more uh, expensive for people to live their daily lives. Or at least this, this is the rationale. And, and so the province decided to send out $600 per child or per senior 
um, as a way to help uh, mitigate sort of the extra expenses. And this sort of goes along the lines. We're not the first province in the past year to, to have done this, right? Saskatchewan did it. Uh, Manitoba did it, did it. I think, mean, interestingly enough, like the conservative-based people, governments are the ones that are sending out money uh, to people. But, um, but yeah, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a few little stipulations. And, and, and as I mentioned, maybe the key things to think about is that if you have, if you are taking care or you have minors under the age of 18 in your household, or you yourself are over 65, or you are taking care of somebody who's over 65, um, you're generally uh, probably going to be allowed to uh, apply. And first thing I would say is that go to the alberta.ca website. You know, there's going to be scams. Anytime the government hands out money or anytime there's a new program saying that you might be eligible, you're going to, people are going to get text messages and they're going well, to get, yeah, Justin, emails. I got a, I got a text right? message that told me to go to some other website for this. You're telling me it's still really? the Alberta website. Yeah. So, I, so, and, and again, think about the people uh, disproportionately in society who might be able to be, might be, uh, um, are targeted for scams such mm -hmm. as that. And it, you know, it's going to be part of the people who are going to apply for a program like this. The most vulnerable so, most, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I could give you affordability.ad, you know, dot alberta.ca and, and whatnot. But what I would just tell you is just go to alberta.ca, go to that website. It's the province's website. And right on the front page, it says, click here to apply and learn more about this program, right? So don't click on a text message. Don't <laughs> click on a link that you see in an email. Have yourself or someone to help you and go to alberta.ca and click on the very first thing that you see on that page. And it's going to be the affordability uh, payments uh, program. Alternatively, go in person to a, uh, an, a registry office and you can also apply there in person. But for most people, you're going to be able to, uh, hopefully be able to do it online. So avoid the scams, first of all. Mm -hmm. Um, a couple of key things. Again, 65 years of age or older in the household, or if you have, uh, you're the guardian or you have children under the age of 18 uh, in the household. One of the more interesting aspects of this is that the household income limit is $180,000 based off of 2021 tax year. So not 2022, but the 2021 tax year. So like a year ago, year and a half ago. Uh, but yeah, $180,000 household income. So some might think of that as, as a fairly high barrier and there's no low bar, there's no minimum, right? Uh, but the moment you start putting barriers or you put these parameters around, invariably, you're going to have people missing out or just on the other side of that line, that dividing line. I don't know which way to rectify it. Um, I know if right off the top of your head, if you had a way to change it, Marcus, and we, would there be something, a different parameter you might think about? I was just going to ask you 180,000 uh, household, if it's a an individual household though, I think it must be lower, right? No, it's in, it's 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 so household. So it could be up to two people. 75K yeah. a year would qualify for this? If you had children in your okay, house yeah, or, you were, or, or you were the age of 65 and making, yes, $175,000, you would be eligible for this money. Yes. So, uh, and then conversely on the opposite side, and you've probably heard, you may have seen some of the complaints or some of the concerns is that you can have somebody working part-time as an individual uh, low-income earner, and they would not be able to qualify and apply for, for, the, for this funding or for this money. So um, yes, uh, I mean, I, I'm, we're not changing the parameters as you know today, 
Uh, maybe over the course of the next few months, if enough people complain, maybe they'll do some adjustments. Maybe they'll look at the 2022 most recent uh, tax uh, tax year. You know, once the uh, once our the tax season's over, right? When I, in, when we uh, do our own personal tax returns, uh, maybe there's an opportunity there, right? But for now, 2021 tax year, household income, whether it's one person, whether it's two people. Uh, whether it's three, uh, but yes, that is the kind of the high, uh, the maximum amount. So call it what you want. But uh, for example, though, like Manitoba, when they uh, sent their uh, funds out, uh, I believe they had a hundred seventy-five thousand dollar household limit too. Uh, but it was, it was, you know, it wasn't specifically for children or for for seniors. Slightly different, but anyway, that number scale seems to be kind of common. Uh, but what it is, uh, again, the money, it's up to it's six hundred dollars per eligible person, so per eligible child or per eligible senior. So it's $100 a month from January till June. So if you don't apply in January, you can still apply in February, March, April, May, June. And when you do apply and you do qualify, you'll get that money retroactively back to January. So for example, if my household qualified, right, and I have two children under the age of 18, right, potentially I could be getting $600 per child so a total of one thousand two hundred dollars, you know, two hundred dollar increments over the next two months or over the next six months. So it's not insignificant. It's not you know, it's not a ton of money in this day and age again. But you know, if you were to find a a five dollar bill on the ground every single day, you'd probably pick it up, right? So uh, I would probably encourage anybody, even if you don't think you'll be qualified to apply, just go and apply anyway. Uh, you know, it's kind of like you know. Do you want to apply for the GST uh, rebate on your on your personal income tax, right? Just apply anyway. It's not going to hurt. And by chance, if you do qualify, then you'll get the funds. And if you don't, then, uh, you know, you're, you're no better or no, no worse, right? So, um, but yeah, you know, for someone like yourself, you know, uh, a single individual, uh, no children, no seniors living in your household, um, any general impressions uh, from you, you know, from someone like yourself? Uh, about this program and how you cannot, even though you pay the same gas and you pay the same grocery bills or the bill comes out similarly, uh, but you can't apply. Well, you already don't pay the same tax rates. I, I can tell you oh, that. that's true. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, generally I'm, I think it's crazy for government to be spending money to fight inflation because you're basically inflation and inflation is caused because there's too much money in the system. And one of the biggest things that, puts money into the system is fiscal, you know, government, uh, fiscal policy. But I mean, at least in this case, Alberta is doing this with surplus money. And, you know, we, we've had Ralph Bucks in the past, uh, in previous elections, I believe Daniel Smith campaigned on Danny Bucks or something like that. At least it's not, you know, willy nilly giving money to absolutely everybody, even those who don't need it. It is targeted. It, I think, is, you know, politically very uh, astute. Um, you know, it, it's it's targeted to the right people. And, um, you know, people like me, I'm, I don't care that I'm not getting anything. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, I think so. When you talk about political astuteness, just to touch on it briefly, it mm -hmm. is targeting seniors and it's targeting parents with children. And I think those two constituencies are fairly large and fairly influential uh, in, in in and they tend to come out and vote, right? So yeah. um, there is there's certainly connections on that as well. And it's interesting that you bring up uh, the Ralph Bucks uh, from back in the day uh, for those that uh, were uh, of age, uh, 18 years of age or older. And it was actually back in 2006. Yep. So it's been a while. It's actually been like 17 years uh, since those that those funds came out, and that was $400. And I remember getting that $400. 
uh, <laughs> and uh, taking a picture of my check there. But that was significant you know, money back then. That was it was it meant something absolutely like at our age, it, you know. <laughs> oh, for sure. Uh, you know, uh, you know, young mid twenty year old or something. You know, make getting uh, getting four hundred dollars from the government. Absolutely. You know, no, no, uh, no, uh, no strings attached. Right. I'm sure people bought Air, uh, the initial uh, um, iPods and stuff back in the, you know back then too. I right. Think, yeah, I that. remember a lot of people buying iPod Nanos back then. That was the big thing back mm-hmm. then. Oh six. I was thinking, uh, did I spend mine on a PlayStation Three? But that wasn't out yet. That was two thousand eight. You know, I probably was smart and just put it in my savings account. But I know, I know what people were spending it on. iPods were the big thing. Yeah. So it, it helped, yeah. So, but to your point, you know, the money got injected into the into the uh, into the uh, at least the provincial economy uh, at that point in time. And so, there's some interesting parameters uh, or parallels, I should say, about uh, 2006 and today. And I look back at the inflation numbers, and guess the last time Alberta had inflation. Over four percent. Absolutely, it was two thousand six. I remember that because my condo building was uh, a few years after that. Actually, we did a uh, yeah. what you might call it a uh, reserve like fund study. Res- yeah, and the people doing the reserve fund study used six percent as the inflation rate for all the you know future expenses. Ooh. And I was the guy saying, you know, look, I know I know inflation was six percent very recently, but that's not a yeah. long term number and it's the same right now it's not a long-term number it is coming down it's come down to transitory that's not not that it's transitory but six (laughs) you know we're not going to compound inflation six percent per year ad infinitum yeah but it was interesting yeah the last time we had inflation greater than four percent was back in 2006 and also concurrently with that right the province also had a massive surplus uh provincially Largely due to, you know, a fairly strong energy sector, oil prices, energy prices. Again, another very common, similar parallel. And and, and so... Not and to say the Oilers time... made the Stanley Cup finals. Oh, well, let, let's wait. Hold, hold, on, hold our breath for that, right? <laughs> we got another half season to go. But yeah, they're on a, I think they're on a five-game win streak now, right? <laughs> so it makes me sort of wonder that, like, not that, you know, there, there's some um, past precedence with it, right? But... Inflation happens largely because of input costs and uh, spending and, and things get beginning more expensive in, in the economy. And energy is no doubt a major portion of those input costs or the general spending day to day, month to month, whether it's your heating bills or your gasoline or the gasoline used to transport goods and serve, you know, goods around around the place. And so I wonder if the next time the province were ever to do anybody, any government, uh, provincial government, uh, would suggest to hand out money again, whether it's uh, a $400 to every single adult or $600 to a senior or to a minor, uh, or at least to the parents taking care of, of those uh, respective uh, demographics, um, that in the future, we just should expect that should Alberta hit 4% inflation, it's probably going to mean the energy sector is doing fairly well, the <laughs> province is going to have a surplus, and that there's going to be a ton of cash that's sitting there that is tempting for a leader to hand out in some form to uh, some member of the uh, provincial population. Yeah. We're so fortunate to live in Alberta for these reasons. Yes. I also remember yes. back then in the early 2000s, uh, natural gas prices went through the roof and they also credited our bills with something like to, to ease the pain. And so the fact is, you know, we live in a place where when, when all the costs are going up and we have high inflation, we have the ability the, the fiscal ability by our provincial governments to either 
eliminates gasoline taxes like they did um or you know give us a credit for we got our we got our electrical bill credits we get our our gas bill and uh that's nice uh you know contrasted with a place like uh you know germany where you know they if the gas prices are sky high they just have to live with it i mean their, their government does do some things as well but uh, they don't have the actual fiscal capacity, really. I mean, they're not getting more money in because of high gas prices. It's just basically a cost to them. Or even Saskatchewan, just go next door. And like, yeah. you know, how are they affording to give people money in a similar sort of standpoint to cut, to target or to to uh, to fight inflation, right, with more money uh, mm -hmm. when they don't have as much? I mean, yes, they do have energy, of course, in Saskatchewan. It is a major player in that province as well. But uh, but not to the extent as it is in, in this province here in Alberta uh, or Manitoba, right? Who has that has even less? Uh, um, you know they have power. They got really cheap hydro over there. But uh, the commodity pricing or the benefits that, uh, that in, in an inflationary world uh, they wouldn't see to the degree uh, again as Alberta. So um, you know that kind of lends itself, I think, also to sort of one of my you know core principles that I think about is that. Us living in Alberta, whether it's Edmonton, Fort McMurray, Calgary, uh, anywhere in between and around, uh, is that particularly for Albertans, is that we do benefit, whether and and also suffer uh, when times are bad uh, uh, to this to this one major industry. And even though you may not work directly for that industry, we are able to have some ancillary benefits through the province, through programs such as this, through some yep. of the policies that they're making, as you mentioned, they, they, the gas tax and whatnot, right? And so we are, and you know, again, property prices, things of that nature, employment, so on and so forth. We are very much still, and, and, for, and for a very long time, we'll be connected to that one major industry. And to the, and, and you know, I, it's, I hate to like boil it down to a, like a line, but I did, I have mentioned to people, like what is good for energy is bad for the rest of the economy. And vice versa and what's inflationary is generally good for the alberta economy as well uh, but is good bad for a lot of other things we just have the ability in this province to be able to help um reduce that friction and have policies or or the even the the fiscal uh uh funds to be able to help support in 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 such situations but you know it hence lends itself again to the whole big picture diversification uh comment uh and and yes if if I were to get, you know, twelve hundred dollars from the province over the next few months, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be happy. You know, I might not, I might not qualify, but I'm, you know, I would be happy if I tried. So I'm going to apply anyway and see. Yep, that's a good idea. Yeah, but I would say yes for anybody listening. Just try, just apply. Go on the website again, Alberta.ca. Click on the uh, on the main link. Um, it's a five question survey. That's all it is. You need to have a profile with the province, which is very easy to do with an email address. Uh, but it's essentially a, a five-question survey, and um, that's it. And then you, you're, you've, you've, your application has been sent in. And I think they've already said uh, over two, about 250,000 uh, people have already uh, signed on mm -hmm. and uh, gotten approval uh, for their uh, minors or their uh, their senior relatives. So it's, it's going. And again, we have until the end of the, end of June to to uh, uh, to apply. No rush there. And the website hasn't crashed. <laughs> uh, not since Wednesday, I, from my understanding, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, the first rush in, the, in that first hour, but I think afterwards, it's, it's, uh, it was up and running when I uh, last checked uh, earlier today. So again, alberta.ca, use that, don't use any other link, and then click through there and uh, um, get your uh, Alberta um, government uh, uh, user ID and uh, go through that very quick and painless uh, uh, application process.
You know, another website that I find very useful uh, for obviously for our listeners who are in Alberta is the uh, My Alberta website. The uh, I don't know if you use that, Justin. My My Alberta Digital ID. That is the actually ID that you will be needing or requiring to uh, apply to the affordability initiative. Yes. Yeah. So I was wondering if that connects with that. It probably does. But even if you're not uh, applying for this, you know, just in general, I find that a very useful website. I go on there to pay my speeding tickets. And also, <laughs> like your all your health <laughs> records are on there, um, obviously. I think vaccine passports, when we were doing that a few years ago, uh, that was, uh, you know, that was that was all on there, too. So uh, if you're yes. not on there already, it's, it's worthwhile to register for it, uh, verify yourself, and then just have that as a resource anytime you need to look up your health records. Uh, renew your license, registration, all that stuff. It's all in one place now. So they are getting uh, getting better with the digital stuff here in the provin- uh, with the provincial government. Slowly but surely. But yes, uh, you're right. I do have a, I do have an Alberta um, uh, .ca identity or, or uh, an account, and it was primarily for uh, the health records, uh, yep. particularly when I went traveling uh, out of country uh, back in December. So. So yes, that's another thing to kind of have. And again, this you know interesting thing is that when we when we talk about a lot of our you know personal documents, a lot of our lives are now moving more towards digital. And um, it would be uh, I think uh, very practical to also, as much as they say, don't share your password, uh, but have your records, have your digital world, have your digital life uh, documented somewhere so that uh, someone that you trust can access it should you be incapacitated or you're just not uh, uh, not uh, be able to be in contact with right have that document as well and, and something like this the uh, the uh, my alberta digital id would be uh, something that uh, i would include on that as well mm-hmm. so all this comes about obviously uh you know the big uh, elephants in the room is still inflation and uh just a little update in the news we did have uh, inflation numbers coming in the last couple of weeks for us and canada and there's some good news um the number that they always announce on the news is that year-over-year number. Uh, the one for the U.S. came in at 6.45. That's down from the high of June of last year at, of over 9%. And in Canada, the, the year-over-year number 6.32, down from 8.13. Both those numbers can be really read as those were the inflation rates for the year, the calendar year, because they, they reflect the 12 months uh, leading up to the end of December. Uh, the actual numbers, the things that were reported that sort of became part of that composite, uh, Canada's month-over-month inflation for December was only negative 0.06, so pretty much flat, and for the U.S., negative 0.08. So that's really good stuff to see. It means there is maybe some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, if we continue to see numbers like that, or even you know if they're just a little bit above zero, that's okay too. Uh, what happens when they calculate these annual year-over-year numbers? Each each time, each month they update it. One month drops off, and and the newest month gets added on. So when that new number for December came out, for the U.S., for example, they added the negative 0.08, and then they dropped December 2021, which was a high month, 0.58. So uh, eventually, that the highest numbers all came in the first half of last year. Now, you know, to help people understand this too, inflation going away does not mean the price of things goes down again. Maybe some things will go down, like obviously there's some uh, supply issues with chicken and and eggs currently, but um, a lot of other things. I mean, cost uh, wages aren't going down, rents probably not going down. 
eventually interest rates will go down and that'll help uh, people looking to get a mortgage. But um, a lot of things, when inflation happens, it's usually pretty sticky. $5 for a dozen of eggs, for example, instead of $4 or $3.50, I'm just using some random numbers out there, then as long as it stays around $5 or $4.50 over the next year, then we're not. I'm not going to see a larger inflation number due to egg prices, right? And, and so then right. the bar just gets reset to a slightly new, higher normal. Um, does that make up for wages? Does that make up for uh, affordability? You know, that so, remains to be seen. But the, the number itself, like, are things continuing to go up in price? It looks like we're, we're getting past that peak. And stabilization of whatever the normal is going to be going forward just allows for people to reset and and uh, for the economy to also reset, for employers to reset, for employees to um, you know also reset expectations as well for everyone. So all in all, yes, our lifestyle may still be made more expensive, but at least the headline numbers are going to reflect um, some stability or the expensive inflationary times from the last year and a half were actually seemingly past us. The truly wonderful, magical thing about the free market is if egg prices have gone up, it's now pro more profitable to have a chicken farm and, and have, you know, make eggs and sell eggs. And so the free market responds. So more people, maybe, you know, maybe they keep more chickens around and have them lay more eggs and, you know, sell that those into the market and uh, ultimately consumer benefits from more eggs, cheaper prices, which is, you know, contrast that with, uh, I mean, if we had more of a planned economy, to use the polite social studies term for communism, um, you would have, you would rely on the governments, you know, and, and government bureaucrats to decide how, you know, how many eggs, how many egg farms to commission, how many eggs are they supposed to lay, you know, supply management, all that kind of stuff. So that's the, the nice oh, well, thing. That's a, that's a sticky term in Canada. You just said is, it. I don't know. And is there <laughs> supply management for eggs like there is for milk? <laughs> well, maybe not. A, yeah. Um, to certain extent, it may, be, it may not be as impactful as as uh, as, egg, as milk and milk products, right? But uh, my understanding is that uh, a lot of the uh, the agricultural products have, have that uh, in place. So, yeah. And, you know, there's some, there's some benefits to that too, you know, that we don't have a like massive swings where, you know, all of a sudden we have massive shortages of eggs and the price goes sky high. So, so yeah, what I was going to actually say too is yes, the, the farmers, they might, you know, they might produce more eggs into the market, which reduces the, the, the price of eggs. So there is a little bit of unstickiness of inflation, but at the same time, they probably have had to raise the wages that they have to pay their egg collectors. I, I don't know how to farm. So I'm just making these terms up. So I assume farms employ someone to collect the <laughs> eggs. I, I assume that's how they work. Um, and uh, whoever they hire, they're being paid more and their wages are not going to go down. That's not that that never happens or hardly ever happens. Um, so that that amount of the inflation ends up being sticky. So yes, there's there's quite a bit of stickiness. There might be some things that come down in price. But uh, for the most part, the good news of reduced inflation is that things stop going up and we can't have inflation compounding at four, five, six percent per year that will really mess up our financial plans. Those are some higher, uh, yes, assumptions that uh, than most, right? Uh, but yes, yeah, stickiness is, is something to, to come up. And, you know, when I think about the $100 a month that a, a parent might be able to get, you know, over the next few months, how much incrementally beneficial that $100 is going to be. And yeah, I mean, that's going to get you. 25 more dozen of eggs, for example, right? Or it might help towards uh, a program at school that uh, might be slightly out of reach for uh, uh, some families. And so I think that 
you, you know, it is a delicate balance that the policymakers have to do and figure out that how much can we put in. Evidently, back two years ago during the depths of COVID, they put in a heck of a lot of money, probably more money than they needed to, right? Um, but yeah, maybe six hundred dollars um, um for for uh, this year per child, for example, um, helps, but doesn't necessarily push the needle too much. Uh, but again, you know, if it was eight hundred dollars, it'd be even the parents would be even more pleased, right? But uh, yeah, it's not too crazy. Um, what would truly be crazy yeah. is if after all the money they poured into the system in 2000, 2000 or 2020, 2021, after all that and all the inflation that has caused, if the government then spends even more money to try to fight inflation, uh, and, you know, as long as we don't get to those crazy high numbers that we had back then, I think we'll be fine, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in terms of uh, um, other inflationary talk, you know, people's ages also only go in one direction too. And they tend to be sticky or they don't <laughs> tend to go in the other way. Right. So um, use that as a, as a, as a, as a fine way to segue into uh, someone's birthday today. Uh, and uh, may I say happy birthday to you, Marcus. Well, thank you, Justin. Yeah. So uh, it is my birthday on Tuesday, which if I'm able to get this podcast published on Tuesday will be the day that people might listen to this. Yeah, Look, you're so up two and a half percent year over year. Two and a half percent, I guess. Yeah, one over there, 40. 2.4. <laughs> Almost. 2.4% year uh, over year increase. You're age. just saying I'm I'm now above the median age for Canada. Yes. Median age is 41. Um, yeah, so uh, we had some pizza and uh, and cake here at the branch. Um, Have you had your midlife crisis yet? I, I think so, yeah. I uh, <laughs> I don't know. Red Ferrari? Crisis. A red I Ferrari a still good these days? I bought a house last year. I guess it's now almost two years ago. I've not bought a Ferrari or anything yet. No. Um, <laughs> so when you think about someone who's uh, at, at at your age, uh, my age, or and and very close to age to a lot of the listeners uh, to this uh, to this uh, podcast as well, is that you know, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm sort of joking when I think about midlife crisis, but. You know that the the second half of of our lives, you know, when you follow the actuarial tables, uh, mm -hmm. in some ways can be cheaper, right? Because we're getting rid of some debt, whether it's student loan debt, whether it's uh, chipping away at the mortgage debt. Um, children are growing up, you know, those costs are maybe starting to dissipate as well. You're getting into your prime earning years, uh, typically speaking, but then that can get offset too by again inflation things that cost a little bit more over the years, medical costs that tend to more, uh, escalate or be uh, uh, back-end loaded more so than the than the early, uh, the first half of, of our lives and such. So, you know, there's usually like, you know, rules of thumb out there and, and thoughts to say like, oh, how much should I have saved when I was 25? How much should I be saving when I'm 30? How much should I be saving when I'm 40? And, you know, I think we both came across an interesting um, article that was based off of some fidelity studies, uh, Fidelity being one of the large uh, investment firms, uh, one of the largest uh, independent ones in the world uh, out there. And, you know, they say at the age of 40, approximately, you should have around, they suggest, three times your annual earnings in savings. Um, I'm, you know, that because to progress towards the time when you're about 67 and having 10 times your annual uh, income at that point, uh, in order to maintain a, uh, your that lifestyle for the remaining years of your life. So I wanted to get your thoughts and, and hear that is three times your and your uh, your income uh, a reasonable target for someone of our age? And um, you know, if not, or if so, you know, what are some things you would look to uh, to uh, to kind of 
adjust around that. So yeah, it seems pretty reasonable. You know, getting back to midlife crisis, I think one thing psychologically that we experience when we pass 40 is yes, we do realize we're in the second half of our lives. And then we start to think about what have we accomplished in our lives? And uh, one of those things being financially, have we, have we built our wealth to a certain point? Are we just getting by? I mean, when you're 25, 30, even 35, you don't care about how much you've saved for retirement because you don't care if you're even able to save anything because you're still, you still kind of feel like you're at the beginning of your adult life. And, um, and you're, you know, you're not, you don't have to care about that yet, but yeah, once you, once you pass no. 40, that's when you realize, you know, you might want to retire in as little as 20 years. And when you're 40, you think back to when you were 20 and that wasn't that long ago. Um, I've heard 10 or 15, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, there's lots of people like freedom. 55 is freedom number, 55 right? is, and is 13 years well. away for me, for us. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so you, you do start to think about that stuff. And I yeah. found too, when it comes to new clients that come my way, a lot of them are right at that age range, 40, give or take. And I think it's because a lot of people start to think about that stuff. Do I have a solid retirement plan? Am I building enough wealth? Am I doing the right things? So yeah, getting back to the question, how much should you have saved by age 40? That part is completely, that can be anything, you know, let's, let's, yeah. let's use a, let's not use the income things that ranges so much, but let's say $200,000. $200,000 at 40 can be a lot. And in fact, compared to the median, it is a lot. I think uh, that article has median uh, median wealth at different ages, and that includes uh, your home. So we're not talking about your total net worth, but invested assets, maybe you know, cash invested assets that are or financial assets that are dedicated towards your retirement. 200000 at age 40, is that enough? It can be massively yeah, so more can. Than, yeah. Just to jump in there, Statistics Canada, uh, back in 2019, said the median net worth of someone between the ages of 35 and 44. So right in the middle, right that that range, it was 234 thousand dollars net so worth. It's not net worth. Uh, yeah, median net worth uh, for people between the ages of 35 and 44. That 10 year range, and that can be almost entirely home equity. In fact, for most people in like Toronto or Vancouver, yeah. probably is. Um. But, you know, so, so if someone did have 200,000 financial assets at age 40, that could be, that is well above average, I think, but um, it can be way more than they really need for retirement, especially if they have a pension plan, uh, like a good pension plan mm -hmm. through work, work for public service or whatever, um, or it can be nowhere near enough if they don't have that and they have high, you know, they, they have a high lifestyle expense uh, that they like to mostly continue through retirement. So or to spend even more in retirement that big travel trip that you wanted to do and yep. you're postponing till the time you have more available resources or more time and you're not working. Right. So yep. in fact, you might have a more expensive, some people might have a more expensive lifestyle in the first few years of retirement, quote unquote, because they want, there's this pent up demand, uh, things that that list of things that they wanted to do that they weren't able to uh, have the ability of doing so before. Most of us experience lifestyle creep throughout our lives and it's very much peer pressure dominated and, you know, if you do your retirement planning when you're in your 20s and kind of think, hey, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to live comfortably off 3000 a month in retirement. Uh, <laughs> no, you're not. Probably you're not. Because <laughs> by the, you know, when you're in your 50s, because you and your peers are living a certain lifestyle, you might easily be spending 10,000 a month. Um, kind of depends on what kind of what kind of friends or what kind of social life you can. You yeah, it's it's, but, it's, um, it's not it's not student beer anymore. It ends up being, you know, 
the nice beer and then that goes into the wine the entry yeah. wine and then it becomes the nice wine or the regular scotch turns into the nice or the more expensive scotch right a lot of things you're right creep happens invariably um as 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 we age uh, in our lives so what i'm getting at is there's way too many variables to determine is 200,000 mm -hmm. 300,000 up you know i think generally like i said on app you if you have 200,000 saved up at that age you're, you're well above average at least and it's a good mm -hmm. start but you really have to probably look at a bit more detail what your financial plan looks like and that's where you come to an expert like one of us uh to do that um, mm -hmm. you're maybe you're you're doing awesome great you get your gold star whatever um but maybe uh, you do have to save quite a bit more. I've uh, I've often talked about like how much you have to save at different ages to reach a certain goal. Let's say your goal is to have a million dollars saved up by retirement. Um, that's another thing where it gets really, uh, I guess, stressful, or you really have to start thinking about that at age 40. If you don't have mm -hmm. anything saved up for retirement and you don't have a pension plan through work and you, know, you, you figure you probably need to have a million dollars saved up to be able to retire comfortably at age 40, you need to save a lot per month to get there. Versus if you were, you know, in your twenties, you can just, you can probably get by saving a few hundred a month. So then if, you know, I, I think though, you know, you know, the, the, that are, you know, that rule of thumb that approximately three times your annual income sort of ideal, it, it's a, it's a reasonable start. It's, it's a, it's a starting point. It's a starting point to have the conversation and to say that, Oh, you know what, right now I might be only at two. Or maybe I'm only at one, or maybe I'm at four, right? Maybe I choose later to reduce my work. I mean, obviously, there's assumptions built into that the scenario that Fidelity had had built out on, right? And maybe a, you have, you know, three times the, the savings as as they suggest, uh, but in five years' time, you choose to uh, work eighty percent uh, instead of hundred percent, four days a week. So then you get a, a commensurate twenty percent uh, re reduction in income, and then sort of ebbs and flows and all that. And this is, you know, the lifestyle changes, the life events that we go through um, that we use to uh, to help uh, um, update. Uh, our, our various financial plans. Those are things that, again, are idiosyncratic and are, are unique to each individual and e each individual's family. Um, but I think, yeah, it, at least it's a, a, it's a it's a starting point to have a conversation. Um, just like, yes, when you hit 42, someone's going to tell you to start, look, you know, taking care of your health a little bit more and, and, and you know, exercising a little bit or, or go to the doctor a little bit more frequently, right? And as such, I think it, at least if anything, it becomes a point to say, hey, you know what? In fact, at age 42, statistically, I am at the middle of the population of, of, of this, you know, of everyone. And then from here on end, what should I be looking towards considering like, you know, it's, it's halftime, right? Yep. So, yeah. So you wanted to talk about cake? <laughs> oh, you know, it's birthdays. Who doesn't like cake, right? And, yeah. and, and so um, I know, at least in my family, uh, we used to have... Well, there was a guy who... Uh... He, he, he invented a cake. I think it had to, it was like back in the time of the, uh, the Habsburg empire and the, the emperor wanted a cake and he had very limited supplies or something. You probably look up the story on their website and it tells you the whole thing. So I'm probably butchering it, but I think he, he had to make a cake with limited supply and he had a lot of chocolate. That's mostly what he had. <laughs> so this, what, what makes the Zaka different than most chocolate cakes, the chocolate cakes we're so used to here, like the real chocolate cakes, they're so heavy and thick and fudgy uh this is like a nice dry cake and like i think for most north americans they would consider it too dry that's because it's supposed to be eaten with uh some schlacks on it which is whip whipping cream and of course coffee you know austria is coffee culture the austrians were one of the first europeans to really 
discover coffee. When the Ottomans in, invaded uh, or tried to invade Vienna, they left behind their coffee in their in their various war tents, and the Austrians went out and got it, and suddenly uh, coffee proliferated around Austria. So hmm. it's a cake that's really, really good to, to eat with coffee. And so basically what it is, it's a relatively dry, bready consistent, consistency with some uh, some jam, some marmalade in it, like for the, the, the two big bread layers that are kind of connected with marmalade. And then there's marmalade on top of that. And then like solid dark chocolate on top of that. And, um, and yeah, that was almost every birthday when I was a kid. And uh, since then, my relatives in Austria have been sending cake every christmas from austria so you can actually go the to care the package you sort of yeah like you can go to the uh the hotel or the, the website of the hotel and order cake delivered all around the world and it's uh it's packaged well and it's good for a, a number of weeks in, in its packaging um and you're, you're stored at room temperature and it's all good hmm. that's my so cake it's all story. like i can go to the bakery you can't go to the bakery down the street and ask for uh, a zakatota well, you know, if you go to the artistic bakery here in Edmonton, um, at least that's where my parents used to get it, I think, um, okay. when they didn't make it themselves, um, or you go to the uh, the website of the uh, hotel, Hotel Zacher, I think it is in Vienna. Um, would a hundred dollars a month would that would that be able to cover a cake with delivery? I think uh, the cake, the, the the like, there's a medium sized one to get delivered. I think is eighty bucks. Right underneath. Or it might even be 80 euro. So, um, <laughs> okay. Well, that's a different topic. I'll say that's a different amount. Then. It's not cheap. It's not cheap okay. to get cake delivered that far. Well, you, you send a note to uh, the provincial government and ask for uh, a wider uh, um, uh, eligibility so that you can get your cake. Yeah. Yeah. And eat it too. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Nice way to finish that off. Yep. Anything else on the top, on your plate? Uh, anything that you're looking forward to over the next week coming up? Well, it's, uh, I don't know. There's not much coming up, I think, in the next week or so. Just my birthday. And, uh, uh, of course, by the time anyone listens to it, we'll already be in the middle of the week. Uh, Robbie Burns Day is on Monday. Um, important to us scotch drinkers. Uh, my Rotary Club is having an event um, on Monday, of course. And uh, what else? Uh, yeah, we're just basically into the final week of January. January looks like it's been uh, shaping up to finish off a uh, pretty decent month in the markets. Uh, nice bounce back from December. Of course, one month really doesn't matter to us long-term investors. And uh, the Oilers are on fire again. They just beat Tampa Bay just the night uh, before we were recording this. And, um, you know, Kane is back. And I think uh, things are things are looking the, on the up and up for them. I always like to look back on the, uh, the, the sort of the 12-year lunar cycle. Uh, what was the last year of the rabbit or what were some previous years of rabbits? So the last one. Yes. Was, and what did the markets do in those years? And uh, Yes. Well, how did they do back in uh, 2011? And 2011 such. was the last one. Uh, that was not a great year for the markets. Better than 2022, but... Um, uh, that was a year when we uh, we had a dip where the markets dipped uh, as low as 20%. There was all those those sort of issues with uh, European debt crisis. And, oh, the U.S. had a Post debt ceiling issue, uh, which they are having again. So that's probably on a lunar cycle, the debt, debt ceiling issues. <laughs> um, so maybe uh, years of the rabbits are years where the market kind of races to a start. And they did, I think, in 2011. And then peter out towards the end of the year. One of the previous years of the rabbit was 1987, which was a 
fantastic year up until about October or September, October, things got a little shaky. Um, so uh, let's see what happens in uh, this year's rabbit. I kind of remember back to my days at the bank uh, when I was, when I was starting as a financial planner, there it was 2007, 2008. And that was a real uh, messy time in the markets. And uh, I had a Chinese coworker who told me, uh, well, it was 2009, I think was year of the year of the ox. Was it year of the ox? 2009. I can't look it up right now, but I think that was it. And mm -hmm. uh, he told me, uh, don't worry, Marcus, it's the year of the ox. It's, that's a bull. <laughs> and so 2009, I was thinking, yeah, things. I think things will be okay. Even though they were crashing at that time, I think things will be okay. And uh, and sure, sure enough, they were. Things got better. And so 2008 <laughs> was year of, that was also year of, the, year of the rat. Okay, so last year was year of the ox, wasn't it? Um, or 2021. But year of the rat, 2020 was year of the rat. That was a bad year for various reasons. <clears throat> 2008 was year of the rat. That was the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, 1996. Anyway, it's high school, high school, all sorts of high school uh, drama, right? But uh, yeah, I, I, I think you know there are some things that are cyclical, right? Uh, whether it's a 12-year cycle or a four-year uh, uh, market cycle as well, right? There's people tend to move in things, right? So, uh, but suffice to say, I think I think uh, we we've got a, a, 11 months of the calendar year, the our our growing, you know calendar year, but uh, yeah, with the start of the year of the rabbit. On the lunar calendar um yeah we'll just uh check back and wait and see right but uh it's fun it is fun to be able to see the mishmash and the, and the integration of different cultures and uh a little bit of understanding uh along that as well that comes along with it well enjoy your weekend enjoy uh leading up to your birthday the birthday birthday and uh yes and, uh, fa choy. Fa choy, i was just about to say yeah <laughs> I'm trying to think of other ways I can say it, but uh, I'll leave it at that. That is the Korean version, yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs>Any views discussed in this podcast are those of the presenters or any guests and not necessarily those of Canaccord Genuity Corp. Statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views expressed are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial circumstances, or general need of any individual organization or institution. Investing in equities is not guaranteed, values change frequently, and past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Investors cannot invest directly in an index. Index returns do not reflect fees, expenses, or sales charges. Please do not hesitate to contact us should you want to know more about anything discussed in this podcast. CG Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investor Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.